actually saw things. Um, he, he would experience visions, prophetic visions, in two different time zones, if you want to think of it that way. One was in his time. He, he, God gave him visions of what would take place in his lifetime and, and in his, his era. But then he also saw visions of years, decades, centuries of what would take place. Isaiah 53 is Isaiah seeing the Messiah. He, we, we don't see the name of Jesus in Isaiah 53, but we can look backwards and we know it was written about Jesus. Isaiah didn't know this would be Jesus. He just knew this, somebody is coming and this is what's going to happen to him. And so if you have a Bible, open up to Isaiah 53, and I want to go through and just look at the first seven verses. And so let me begin with Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Isaiah writes and he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So Isaiah is seeing the future. He, I mean, I don't know what it would be like to have a prophetic vision from God. So clear that, that it's like you're watching a movie. And Isaiah is seeing this. And he is seeing something in the future. And what he is seeing is he sees the Messiah. And it's almost as if Isaiah is there, but he can't interact with anybody but he's like in the moment and he's looking around and it's almost like he's, he's bewildered at how these people aren't believing the message. How are all these people not believing what is being said? Because when he says, who hasn't heard this message from us? He's talking about the prophets. He's talking about first centuries me and other prophets have declared this, and it's happening, and nobody's believing it. We've seen that as we've looked at the book of John in our study of, on Sunday mornings. Remember when it says that the people believed in Jesus after they saw signs. But you remember Jesus, it says that Jesus didn't believe in them because he didn't believe in their belief. Because their belief was shallow. Their belief was just, wow, look at what this guy can do. He's healing people. He's making people see. Oh, I believe that. But Jesus is like, no, you don't. You don't believe me. You don't believe in me. And so Isaiah is seeing this. He, he, he's perplexed at how nobody is believing the word. But then he goes on and in verse 2 and he says, for he grew up, the he is Jesus, the Messiah, the one that will be coming. He grew up before him. And, and I read this, and I believe it's Jesus the Son growing up before God the Father. For he grew up before him like a young plant, a, like a root out of dry ground. This is prophetic in describing Jesus' upbringing up until his ministry would start. Jesus was, and, and, and Isaiah is depicting Jesus' life very clearly here. Jesus did not grow up in a palace. 
He did not grow up with wealthy parents. He did not grow up in the, 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 the bustling city of Jerusalem. Jesus was born to peasant parents, poor. He, he was born in a poor village with animals and not people. He grew up in a town called Nazareth that was one of the most despised villages in Israel. And in fact, if you remember when we were studying in the book of John, when um, Nathaniel found, and I'm hoping I got this right, I think it was Philip who found Nathaniel. And Nathaniel was like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because the people in, of Israel looked at this small little place called Nazareth, and they mocked it. They despised it. But yet that's where Jesus grew up. He grew up in a time, if you notice it says there, that he grew up before like a young man plant, like a root out of dry ground. Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, grew up in a, in a place politically and spiritually was a barren wilderness. Because for 400 years, God hadn't spoken to a prophet in Israel. For 400 years, the voice of God was mute to the people of Israel. The people, the, like the Pharisees, memorized scripture, but they did not have a voice of God. The nation of Israel had become a barren desert, a dry wasteland spiritually. And this is what Jesus was growing up in. And then in continue in verse 2, it says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. One of the things, and even, even some of the, the video that was from The Passion of the Christ, Hollywood does us a disservice when it comes to images of Jesus. They make Jesus this tan white guy with beautiful hair. No, not at all, okay? Again, the verse says, this is describing what Jesus was like. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing about Jesus' appearance that would appeal to people. It wasn't like people walked down the street and said, oh, there's the king, the, 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 the king of the Jews. He looks like a king. Look at how regal he is. No. There was nothing about his form or stature that caused people to turn their heads when Jesus walked down the street. In fact, Jesus was a common name like Jim. Everybody was named Jesus. There was nothing about him that caused people to stop and go, you're different. He wasn't, he wasn't like this charismatic, just this charisma oozing out of him because he was just this, like this dynamic leader like, you know, a great businessman is. Obviously, he, no. There was nothing about him. Nothing about his form. In fact, if I were to guess... I bet Jesus was probably shorter than average. Probably just skinny. Appearance average. 
If he passed you on the street, you would just pass on by and not give him another look. That's who this Messiah was. That's who our Savior was. There was nothing about him that drew people to him. The only two things that caused people to be drawn to him was his words and his works. That's it. Nothing about him. Nothing about him outwardly caused people to go, I want to follow that guy. It was his words and his works. Now getting in verse 3, now we're starting to get into the meat of all of this. Now Isaiah is now really seeing who this guy was, what he was about. Verse 3, it says, he was despised and rejected by men. That word despised there, in, you know, when we think of despise in English, we, we think, you know, like showing contempt towards somebody. But Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is actually written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word means to consider something or someone to be worthless, unworthy of attention. The people in Jesus' time despised him. They didn't show contempt. They just like, eh, he's worthless. There's nothing about him that deserves any attention. They despised him, especially the Pharisees. It says he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, here's the thing about Jesus. When it says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, that wasn't just the last 12 hours of his life. That would have been from the time he started his ministry, as we see in John chapter 1, when he shows up to John the Baptist and he's baptized by John and his ministry begins. It's at that point that he becomes a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And you got to ask yourself, what kind of sorrow did Jesus experience? I mean, it wasn't until his death that he would start getting beat. It wasn't until his death that he was starting to get mocked. It wasn't until his death that he was flogged. What sorrow, what grief did he experience? Here's what the grief and the, the sorrow that Jesus would have experienced is, got to remember, he's God the Son. And his mission was what? To come and to seek and save the lost. So as he started to move among the people, guess what he would have been experiencing? The pain, the hurt, the sorrow, the suffering of other people. In the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 36, it says, Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I believe that the grief and the sorrow that Jesus would have experienced is because of the sin in, in the people. How many of you know the, that the pain, the grief, the suffering, everything that we experience in our life, the main cause is one thing, sin. Sin brings suffering. Sin brings pain. Sin brings death. Sin brings it all. And Jesus walked among his people, and he saw it in them. When he talked to the prostitute, he, you can't tell me he could not feel the pain in that woman's heart. 
when he would talk to a tax collector. You can't tell me that he could not feel the pain of abandonment and alone. I mean, a tax collector was despised and hated by his fellow man, and he would have been isolated and alone. You can't tell me Jesus, when he finally had a conversation with Matthew, a tax collector, he says, Matthew, come and follow me, that he couldn't feel the pain of Matthew. You see, Jesus experienced suffering and grief because that's why he came. He came for sin, and he experienced that. It goes on, he says, so he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You see, Jesus wasn't the popular kid on the block. Jesus wasn't the most popular person at the party. Jesus was looked at as he was a party favor because he could heal people. He could do stuff, but just in himself. People esteemed him not. They were not attracted to him. They were not drawn to him because of who, what he looked like or what he had. There was nothing about him that drew people to him. And now in verses 4, 5, and 6, these are the verses that, which are truly the heart of Isaiah 53. Verses 4, 5, and 6 are the heart of the gospel message. I want to read all three of these verses, and I, as I read them, I want you to hear the different pronouns between us and him. So in verse 4, it says, Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see the, the contrast in, in pronouns? We, us, our problem. Here's how we've messed up. And he, him, everything that, that should be upon us was upon him. You know, if we break this verse apart now, we start to see what happened to Jesus. And the reality is on this side, and, and Dusty kind of hit on this. On this side of heaven, I don't think you and I can truly grasp what Jesus went through. I mean, we can watch a video clip. We can watch, I think Mel Gibson's movie, Passion of the Christ, is probably one of the most vivid movies out there ever, ever done about the crucifixion in the last few hours of, of Jesus' life. But even watching the movie, I truly don't believe we can understand the gravity of what Jesus went through in those final moments, in his final hours. We can't truly understand the physical pain, the physical beating that he took for us. So when it says that he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, griefs and sorrows, again, are just metaphor, metaphorical for sin. 
Because every grief and every sorrow in our life is foundational because of sin. It says we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Now here it is. He was wounded for our transgressions. Transgressions is, the word transgressions means rebellion. We are the one who have rebelled against God's commands. God is the one, and I, I say this all the time, God is God and we are not. And God set a standard. And, and, and who is going to stand before God and argue our case? Who's going to go before God and go, you know what, I really don't think your standard was fair. You know what? God is God. And God set a standard. And he has a law. And, and the problem is, is that none of us obeys it. We transgress against it. We rebel against it. We don't want to align with it. And so he was wounded. It says he was crushed for our iniquities. The word iniquity means the crookedness of sin. I read that today and I thought about that. The crookedness of sin. Does that define sin any better? The crookedness of it. The twistedness of it. Sin is, sin is never straight. Sin is never easy. Sin is never well, like, oh, oh yeah, it's well organ. No, sin is crooked and twisted and depraved. And Jesus was crushed for that sin, for the crookedness of it. It says, upon him, the chastisement, the punishment brought us peace. The peace that Isaiah is talking about is what Romans chapter 5 says, that when you are justified through Christ, you have peace with God. Apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. We have no peace with God. We are broken with God. And it says, with his stripes, we are healed. Spiritual healing. Now, the thing is, it says that he was crushed. He was wounded by his stripes. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the end of every one of those books, starts to lay out what Jesus went through. Some of us, you know, you read this, and you could always ask the question, well, why couldn't Jesus just die? Why couldn't he just have a heart attack? Why couldn't he just live until 85 or 90 and just die in his sleep and call it a day? Why did he have to be broken? and crushed, and afflicted. You see, this is again where you and I truly cannot grasp or understand the weight of sin. You and I can't. Because we view sin as simply this. It's a problem. It's a mistake. I messed up. Sin broke the universe. Sin broke the world. Sin broke the relationship between humanity and God. Unrepairable. And sin has to be judged. And the Bible makes it very clear that the wrath of God will judge sin. 
We've got to understand that. That's the depth of sin that we can't begin to understand. I don't think we can even scratch the surface of the, 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 what sin does. So sin had to be dealt with. And it couldn't be dealt with just idly, just kind of like sweeping it under the carpet. It had to be paid for fully. So Jesus had to become that sacrifice. He had to be broken. He had to be crushed. Like a lamb that was slaughtered and the blood poured out, Christ had to experience that. And so when the the Gospels are, are written and, and, and unfolding, and they start to show us what Jesus went through. He was beaten by people, punched in the face, smacked, hair pulled. He was beaten by rods several times. He was with the Roman soldiers, and they put the crown of thorns on his brow. And the thorns would have been very long ones, and they would have fashioned it, and they would have pushed it down, and it would have cut into his, his forehead. And then it says that they beat him over the head with the crown of thorns with a wooden rod. And then they took him to what was called the praetorium, and they would have bound his hands, and then Roman soldiers. You see, Jewish law forbade anyone to be whipped more than 39 lashes. At 39, you had to stop. Because if you went to 40, you broke the law. So any person that was being flogged could only be flogged up to 39 lashes, not with a Roman soldier. Roman soldiers were very sadistic in their whipping. They would take a cat of nine tails, a, 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 a whip, that were normally leather straps. And just the leather straps themselves would, would, could pierce and cut through skin if enough lashes were put upon a back. But Roman soldiers didn't think that, well, what, the leather straps are enough. Sometimes they would put little lead balls onto the end of those straps or pieces of glass or bone, or pieces of metal, anything that could cut even more. And a Roman soldier would usually go to the point of physically exhausted before he stopped. And here's the thing. Sometimes a person could be flogged by one Roman soldier, and that soldier could become exhausted, another soldier would take his place. Most of the time, a person, a person was usually flogged before they were crucified because the Roman soldiers didn't want people on that cross too long. And the point was to get them so, so blood-drained um, that they would be on the cross maybe for a few days and eventually die of loss of blood. But sometimes a person would die during the flogging because it was that intense. It could literally cut through the back, through the sides of a person, actually start to cut internal organs. That's what Jesus went through. When it says, by his stripes, meaning the stripes on his back, the beating that he would have taken, those straps would have cut through his skin, 
like razors cutting through a sheet. That easy. And then after that flogging is when he stood with Barabbas, Pilate in the center, Jesus on one side, Barabbas on the other, and it was Pilate who was trying to get Jesus released because he couldn't find any fault, but he had to please the crowd. And when he said, who do you want me to release? The people chanted, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. A known terrorist, a known murderer. And they gave up Jesus. And after being flogged, after being beaten, after being dehydrated, and after the loss of blood, you would think that, that Jesus had no strength left. He still picked up a cross. And that wooden cross would have dug into the wounds of his back. The blood would have started pouring out again. Any, anything that, any, you know, the blood, the capillaries that would have stopped, that, that cross would have dug into his back and he would have carried that thing. And he had to carry it what, like, like as, as Dusty said, the Via Della Rosa. It was the way of suffering. It was the road. And it was about a mile to a mile and a half in length. And, and it wasn't just a nice little straight path. It was going through the city, going around corners and, and crowded with people. And the Roman soldiers still whipping, still pushing, still driving him. He finally got to that point where he was so physically exhausted he could no longer carry his cross. And that's when Simon, a, a guy from a, a city called Cyrene, picks up that cross with Jesus and carries it to Golgotha. And it's at that point that Jesus is laid down on that cross and the Roman soldiers, one would have taken his right arm and pulled it out and driven a nail through his hand. And then another one would have taken his left arm and pulled it straight and driven a nail through his other hand. And then they would have taken both of his feet and put them on one on top of the other and driven a nail through both of his feet into that cross and they would have lifted that cross up and pounded it in a hole, and he would have hung there. Like I said, for a lot of people, some people could hang on that cross for a day, for two days, for three days. And the way a person normally died on a cross was through suffocation. Because a person, every time you would go up, you could catch a breath. But the moment you hung back down, your lungs could no longer breathe. So Jesus, to grasp, to, to get air into his lungs, would have to pull up with his hands and push up with his feet as his back would rub up against that wooden cross, trying to grab one ounce of breath. And with only a, a few hours, the Bible tells us that Jesus breathed out his last breath. And died on that cross. Everything that Jesus went through was only for one reason. For you and for me. Because of our sin. Jesus was so badly beaten that it tells us in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, it says, his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. 
his form was marred beyond looking like a human. He was crushed for our sin. You see, that's what tonight is all about. It, it, it is understanding that, that the punishment that was upon Jesus should be upon us. The wrath that Jesus took should be upon us. But he made a decision. You know, it's interesting. There are people who read this or they read the Gospels. They, they see what Jesus goes through. And this, is, this has kind of been a, a, a theory, a, a, an idea for a couple of decades now. But I think it's ramping up again. That the idea of Jesus going through this is nonsense because it's child abuse. That why would a father do this to his son and and people have this idea that they, they're like they're, that's just ludicrous the idea of a father beating his son like that i can't i can't grasp that here's the thing god did not force jesus to do this jesus voluntarily took the role because even when he was alive when he was on this earth jesus kept telling people nobody takes my life i will lay it down Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew the cost that he was going to pay. That's why when you read verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that, are, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When it says that Jesus didn't open his mouth, it doesn't mean he didn't say anything because we know he spoke. We know he spoke to Pilate about what truth was. We know he said things while he was on the cross. When it says that he did not open his mouth, it means he didn't argue. When, when he, you know, he was falsely accused. He committed no crime. But yet the Jews had people come in and give false witness and testimony against him. His trial was, was a rigged trial. He had no jury. He had nothing. To, he had no attorney. He, he, nothing. He was falsely accused within a couple of minutes, and he was condemned to death with nobody supporting him. And he, was, he went through all of this. He, when he was before Pilate and he was being whipped, he didn't sit there and chant, hey, I, this is so unfair. I am being un, un, unfairly treated. I, I, this should not be. No. He did not open his mouth. Why? Because he knew what he was doing. He knew why this is. He knew this has got to happen. If this doesn't happen... Humanity is lost. If this doesn't take place, if I don't do this, there is no hope for lost people. Humanity is going to hell. He put himself on that cross. He walked that road with that cross. He took the beating. He allowed the Roman soldiers, when he was in the garden with, the, with, with um, his disciples, and Peter lops off the ear of the serpent, of the serpent, of the servant. 
He tells Peter, he's like, put your sword away. He goes, don't you think I could call down a legion of angels and get, he's like, I could get out of here in a second if I wanted to. But he didn't. He allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be beaten. He allowed himself to be unfairly tried. He allowed himself to be judged. He allowed himself to go through everything he went through. And he allowed himself to be put on that cross. He allowed himself to die and to be suspended between heaven and hell. He allowed himself and he, he, that the father would have to turn his back on Jesus because no longer could the father look upon Jesus because at that time he became sin. He did that. This was not a form of any kind of a child abuse. This was Jesus voluntarily saying, I will lay down my life for the sin of people. They can't can't do it. They will never be able to do it. I'm not going to sit here and argue with Pilate. I'm not going to sit here and argue with my captors. I'm not going to sit here and, and try to get myself out of... No, I will do what has to be done. And the only thing that can be done is I have to lay my life down and become a sacrifice. Once for all. And once Jesus died, he set everything in motion. He set everything in motion that gets us ready for Sunday morning. But for tonight, we need to continue to reflect on what he did. And we're going to get ready to take communion here in a sec. I think there's no more appropriate time for, for communion than right now. After we, we've sung about the cross, we, we, we watched a video and Paul is singing about the, the, the way of suffering and we, we see and saw the broken body of Jesus. We see in the book of Isaiah what Jesus did and his body broken, his blood was shed. That's what communion was. When Jesus had that last supper with his disciples, they had really no idea what was going on. They, they, were still, they, they still weren't getting it. But Jesus was telling them, guys, this is it. Mm-hmm. Here in a few moments, everything is about to change. So one more time, guys, we're going to celebrate this Passover together, but it's going to be different. And, and, and he takes the bread and he, he rips it apart. And he says something that he had never said before. And he's like, this is my body. This bread represents my body that here in a few hours is going to happen. It's going to be ripped apart. And then he takes the the cup of wine and he passes it. And he says, when you drink this, understand that this is representing my blood of a new covenant. The forgiveness of sin. That in a few hours... Just like the cup, the wine will run out of the cup, my blood will run out of my body. And just like the cup was passed among the disciples, the cup of God's wrath passed over and poured out on the body of Christ. And his body broken, his blood shed for your sin. So you can get to heaven. So you can have 
as we've been studying over the past couple weeks, eternal life. So tonight when we partake, so guys, why don't you come forward? Tonight, like I always say, you don't have to be a member of Harvest. You don't have to be a regular attender of Harvest, nothing like that. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, meaning you've come to the place where you have accepted Christ as your Savior, please feel free to partake. But tonight, if you don't know Jesus, because in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says that when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming the Lord's death. What that means is that, that you are proclaiming, Jesus died for me, and, and, I, I, and I have received him. I know him as my Savior. If you have never asked Jesus into your life as your, as your Savior, the Bible says, do not partake. Don't take it in an unworthy manner. Let the cup, let the bread pass by. There's no shame in that. But I would encourage you, I'm going to pray here in a second, even in your seat, if you don't know Christ, you can sit there right there in that seat of yours and you can pray, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. You died for my sin. And Jesus, I ask that you'll forgive me and you'll cleanse me of my sin. I ask that you would come into my life and be my savior. If you do that, you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Bible says you shall be saved and so let me pray let me pray over the elements as we get ready to partake and then we'll all just hang on to it and then we'll partake together so Father we thank you for this night, we thank you it's good because of what has come out from this night that through Christ and what he did we all have the hope of redemption. Jesus, thank you that you took the, the wrath of God upon yourself and you became the sacrifice for the sin of humanity once for all time. We thank you that it's only in faith in you that we can be justified and be found right before you, Father God. And so I pray tonight, Lord, as we partake of the bread and the cup, help us to remember the words of Isaiah that Jesus was beaten and crushed and by his stripes we are healed that your punishment brought us peace and that we have eternal life because of you Jesus and we just pray you'll bless this time Lord in Jesus name
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Why don't we all stand and finish this last?